Welcome to TVN's Praise Podcast, hosted by Matt and Lori Crouch, where you will hear interviews with some of your favorite Bible teachers, pastors, authors, and Christian leaders. On today's episode, Matt Crouch hosts New York Times bestselling author and television host Mike Rowe. Listen as they discuss how the changing workforce could cripple the younger generation's view of self and identity, and how to guard yourself against the trend. You're sitting in a, as it were, you coined the phrase, a cathedral to work. There's 7 million jobs waiting to be filled by people that could run a drill press, run a lathe, uh, deal with these kind of things. And somehow work got redefined in a unique way. So take me to your counselor's office in the 70s. Mr. Dunbar. Okay. Yeah. Because you were a potential victim of a, an attempt to change work. A well-intended attempt. You know, I, I don't want to shake my finger at anybody, but in the mid-late 70s, um, we decided as a culture that more people needed to get an advanced degree. And we were probably right, right? We, we needed more people to enthusiastically pursue a university education. But in order to convince people that their best chance of success was a four-year degree, we began promoting four-year degrees at the expense of all the other forms of education. And so we do this in so many different ways. But for me, I remember Mr. Dunbar calling me down to his office, 1979, and he wanted to talk about my future. It's time to talk about your future, Mike. And I'd done okay on some college entrance exams, and he looked at my scores and said, your future is uh, University of Maryland, University of Pennsylvania, maybe James Madison. And I couldn't afford any of those schools. And more to the point, Matt, I didn't didn't know what I wanted to do. And so a liberal arts degree was expensive. It would have required me to go into debt, borrow money. That wouldn't have played well in my home. And so my strategy was to go to a two-year school Um, take all the different kinds of courses I could find and see if something sparked, you know. And at 26 bucks a credit, I could afford to be wrong at that point. So I told this to my guidance counselor and he said, that's all beneath your potential. Um, And then he pointed to a poster behind his head on the wall. And uh, his question was, which one of these guys do you want to be? And on the poster were two, two men. One, a young graduate from a college, dressed in a cap and gown, holding his diploma. Sun rising before him, awash in optimism. And next to him was a a skilled worker in a dirty environment, looking down at the ground, holding a wrench, looking very much like he had just won some vocational consolation prize, right? And the caption, the caption said, work smart, not hard. And so, as near as I can figure it, the war against traditional work began around the same time the push for a very specific kind of education embarked. And so, while we started telling a whole generation that the best path for the most people was a four-year degree, we also started telling them that if you don't go in that direction, you're going to wind up like the guy in the photo, looking dirty and miserable and doomed. Around the same time, we took shop class out of high school. When we did that, we removed all vestige 
of what an entire chunk of our workforce actually looks like. Wood shop, metal shop, auto shop, all this stuff, right? It doesn't matter if you're ultimately into it or not. When you're 15 or 16 years old, there's nothing more persuasive to discourage you from thinking about something than removing all proof of its existence. And that's what we did. We took shop class out of high school. We started telling an entire generation that if it wasn't a four-year degree, you were doomed. Flash forward to today, $1.6 trillion in outstanding student loans, seven and a half million jobs that don't require a four-year degree, but require training and skill. The skills gap and the cost of college are not problems, they're symptoms. They're <laughs> symptoms of a larger disconnect with work. And uh, to the extent that I'm able, with dirty jobs and somebody's gotta do it, and my foundation, we, we simply try to show the country examples of people who have bridged that disconnect by learning a skill that's in demand, by figuring out how to operate that thing, or that thing, or whatever it is, and by not making skilled training the enemy. <laughs> I didn't really tell you this, but the urge in me to lean across my guidance counselor's desk and slap Mr. Dunbar <laughs> upside the head was very nearly overwhelming, because the guy in the photo who looked like, you know, the sad case, he looked like my grandfather a man who could build a house without a blueprint. The, the whole depiction of him was wrong, Yeah. right? And, um, and so for that reason, I didn't really want to slap the guy, but I did want to cross out the word not and replace it with the word and. Mm. Work smart and hard. There was a time in our country where that was the mandate. That was the conventional wisdom. But somehow along the line, we got clever and we got cute and we started saying, wait a minute, if you work smart enough, then you won't need to work hard, right? And that is also part of the reason why it just became so fashionable to wage a war on work. It goes to the difference between being efficient and being effective. Both are good things, right? But if you take efficiency to its logical conclusion, well, you have a robot. A robot doing it, yeah. And if you take effectiveness to its logical conclusion, then you have a very competent human. Huxley said, the greatest threat to freedom is total anarchy, but the second greatest threat is total efficiency. My goodness. So, you know, Dirty Jobs was a rumination on work. My foundation came out of that show and today, we're still ruminating on it. And we're still trying to challenge the prevailing definition of a good job. I uh, sometimes get frustrated sitting with you. and Take a number. Yeah. And uh, because I have never really been able to get a look down the rabbit hole deep enough. You, every time I think you've gone deep in something that you really care about, you, you go to a whole new level. I've never been able to tap the well of, of who you are. This stuff is really meaningful to you. I'm like a this Russian is... nesting egg. <laughs> yeah. You uh, think you got the egg. Yeah. yeah, but there's another egg in there. <laughs> yeah. No, look, you know, it's, um, I look at it, it's, all things are micro-macro to me. 
right? I'm micro. So on an individual basis, I do my best to make sense of the challenges that I'm presented with. But on a macro level, you know, and we've talked about this before, work is one of those things that ought to be one of the great uniters in mm. our country right now. And once upon a time, it was. Nobody in this country would dare logically make a case against the benefits of hard work. We, we wouldn't do it because we all knew that part of the path to prosperity involved hard work. Today, there is an affirmative push to challenge anyone who says, wait a second, maybe the problem is you're not working hard enough. If you say that, that's heresy. It's not just a polite debate. You're really not allowed to say that. You know, we have this thing in our foundation called the sweat pledge. Everybody has to sign it. It's 12 simple points that are really a statement of belief. And many people will find a point or two on there that they don't agree with. And parents especially will really take offense. So why should my son sign this thing that says just because I'm in compliance doesn't mean I'm out of danger? Because ultimately my safety is my responsibility. They don't want their kids signing that. Because they've bought into this idea that their health and well-being isn't up to them. It's up to their employer. It's up to whoever owns the building. You know, you've got axes and hatchets and knives lying around here. I see a thing. It looks like... You throw hatchets into wood, all right? Now, is that a safety first thing to do? No. So life, life is risk, you know? And risk ought to be mitigated. It ought to be managed. Nobody wants to take needless risks. But if we think we can make life better by eliminating risk entirely, then we've lost something that goes right to the guts of humanity. Part of this discussion that led to these leather chairs being sat here in this workshop here in Western Colorado, uh, we have to thank Governor Cuomo of New York for. Okay. So thank you, Governor. Um, he made a statement that you challenged. Hmm. And so he made a statement that there was really no policy that he could, you know, impose upon the citizens of New York that would be too draconian if it saved one life. I remember. Yeah. Okay. Then I think you said something in response to that. Well, then let's outlaw left-hand turns. Well, look, yeah. <laughs> he's, again, politicians, and, and the reason I'm not in politics is that you have to dispense cookie-cutter advice. That's your job because policy, by and large, uh, is a reflection of that which is best for the most people. So you have to say the thing that's going to feel the most true. Not the thing that is the most true. Yeah. And so, yeah, Cuomo said that. No sacrifice is too big if it saves a single life. And I think my response was, well, I get it. You're trying to get elected. But it's not like COVID. <laughs> People acted for a while there as though they just learned they weren't immortal. 
Wow. It was like, what do you mean I'm going to die? What do you mean I could die? I don't want to die. And so our politicians come in and say, yeah, you're right. We're, we're not going to let you die. Here's what we're going to do. We're all going to stay in our houses until nobody ever dies again. And it was so simplistic. <laughs> but if you like line it up, that's, that's how the thinking went. Yeah. He, here's our strategy. Yeah. We're just going to wait it out. Yeah. In the history of the world, whoever waits it out, Columbus, Magellan, Balboa, anybody who ever wore a uniform, any fireman, any cop, anybody who ever assumed a measure of risk in order to put something in front of their own well-being. What Cuomo said was the epitome of safety first. If you believe something so completely, or if you believe the people who are listening to you believe it so completely, that you can just get away with saying it. So part of my response was to say, okay, look, if safety is truly first, and if no sacrifice is too great, and if you're the governor of a state, look, 40,000 people died on the roads last year. I can knock that number down to zero right now. It's easy. Drop the speed limit to five miles an hour. Everybody wears a helmet. Wrap yourself in bubble pack and no more left turns. And let's make the cars out of rubber too, right? 40,000 lives saved like that. If that were your real goal, why don't you do that? And the answer, of course, is not going to get you elected. But the truth? The truth is cars are a lot safer when they're in the driveway. And ships are a lot safer when they're anchored at harbor. And we're a lot safer when we sit quietly in our leather chairs and make no sudden moves, when we don't take any risk, when we don't dare to do a thing. Right? So if your God is safety, and if you worship at the altar of well-being, and if you, your burnt offerings go up in the name of, of risk mitigation, then okay, but you're not going to be terribly interesting at parties. And you're not ever going to say anything that anybody writes on a t-shirt. And you're not going to do anything ever except live, in which case I suppose each day concludes when you pat yourself on the back and give yourself a high five, but not too hard, you could hurt a finger. Not too hard. Right? So look, all of this, I get a lot of pushback on this because it sounds like I'm encouraging a level of recklessness. I'm not. I'm simply saying that we made a bargain a long time ago and when you get behind a wheel and you go for a drive somewhere back there in the reptilian part of your brain you know six million accidents are going to happen this year and yet you drive and yet you live if Cuomo had said I'm banning crab. You see, what would have happened? Those guys that risk their life out on that, you know, crab fishing vessels that you do all the voiceovers for and you did dirty jobs out on a lot of boats and you were, you know, in the bowels of those fishing vessels and cleaning out mm -hmm. stringy guts and, you know, all that kind of stuff. True. But if you had never gotten on that, you would have been safer, you of know? Course. So.
Where does this stop? Well, it stops, I think we talked about this once before, but it stops when people get bored of being terrorized. Okay. It stops, we talked about it in London during the Blitz, you know? When those bombs started falling, the people went to ground and they stayed underground for a week, week and a half. After two weeks, they came out. Bombs are still falling, but they came out. Three weeks, the school's open, the shop's open, <laughs> bombs are still falling. They figured out a way to live in a world where bombs were falling. C.S. Lewis writes very famously in 1948 how to live in an atomic age. His explanation works today too. You know, it took people a while to get used to the fact that a bunch of countries had the bomb. Horrifying times, but given enough time and given a rudimentary understanding of mutually assured destruction, we all took a deep breath and said, okay, well, life goes on. And, and now we're going to function in this world. We hope you're enjoying the Praise Podcast. We'll get back to the interview soon. You know, you got to see what would have been your grandfather's values, your grandfather's, you know, life impacted you. He was granddad next door. Somewhere along the line, we live in a day and age that is different. I want you to define that difference and try to tell me what in the world, what flip got, what switch got flipped somewhere along the line that turned everything upside down. But before that, this is a workshop. This is, you know, an analogy of kind of modern tools. We've got some older tools that I found in Dallas and had the guys, you know, get them uh, sandblasted. And then we kind of rubbed this oil stuff into them and, you know, they work again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, the, you know we're, we're sitting in kind of a cathedral to work. This is accentuating our conversation in some way. Okay, that was certainly the attempt. Okay. Well, you succeeded. Okay, sure. perfect. Um, but it is a cathedral. And I'm not sure that I would have ever had the opportunity to see you do a number one rated TV show for almost a decade on Discovery Channel, Dirty Jobs, if it hadn't been for your voice. So your pathway to television started on stage mm. because of a baritone capability that you have you're kind of in a cathedral and does any particular song come to mind that would resonate off the cathedral could you could you somewhat dedicate this cathedral uh and let it be a homage to really what got you here in the first place some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bone. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Well, St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Hold on. See what I did there? Yeah. St. Peter. Yeah. Which I know you love. Yep. Debt. Yep. Which I know you hate. Yep. 
work, yep. which I know you love, yep. song, which I know you adore. A lot of four-letter words going in there that are family-friendly. Yeah. Song, work, and love. <laughs> and a little piece of the, of the art, what do you call them? The, the little oratories? Or oh, is that the right word? Uh, Oratory. Aria? Aria. With a touch, a touch. Yeah, a little, a little, just a little piece of the Italian thing, just for the sophisticated folk in the audience. You have sophisticated folks uh, in the I think so. Hey, you just said something. You mind if I take a quick digression? You may. Whatever it was you were trying to say, what you said instead was art. Now, what happens when you take the art out of a thing, right? We, we took the arts out of high school, the humanities, and there was a great mm. hue and cry. Right, when we cut music programs and things like that. And that affected me, and I was one of the ones complaining about it. But before shop class was shop class, it was called Votech. And before vocational technology was called Votech, it was called the vocational arts. <laughs> That's what you've done here. Hmm. You've taken the uh, talismans of work, and you've made an artistic expression of them. We didn't just take shop class out of high school one day because we thought we ran out of money. We first took the art out of the vocational arts. Wow. And then we knocked it down to Votech. And then we changed Votech into shop. And then we walked it behind the barn and shot it. That's how we got shop class out of high school. We started with a war not on work, but on, on craftsmanship and mm -hmm. on art. So anytime you see somebody challenging the artistry of this, you know, the scales of, I mean, it, there's, there's art in every single thing in here. You either see it or you don't. There's risk in every single activity you ever will perform in here. You either see it or you don't. And so, your earlier question had to do with what has changed since my pop built the church I grew up in, by the way. Um, what's changed is the chronology of things we value. Work has fallen far, far down the list. Art has fallen down the list. Safety has gone to the top. Mm. Comfort has gone to the top. And the... Um, the road we take in pursuit of what we'll call job satisfaction, right? That's changed. That's what's changed. This is a great, I don't know if we have, I don't know how much time we have left, but. Unpack it. All right, let me try and land the plane like this. There was a time when people who were happy in their work didn't start their quest for happiness by trying to identify the proximate cause of their bliss. In other words, what we tell kids today is if you want to be happy in your work, the first thing you do is you sit down and you think about what you want to do. And then once you settle on it, you embark upon a grand plan of action. Now, many times that plan involves borrowing money that you don't have. And uh, then you go to school in order to get all the necessary uh, credentialing that will get you to the next step. And on and on you go. And now suddenly you're 27 years old and you're and you're on your path to get the job that will make you happy. But you're just running into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. 
and now you've got $120,000 in debt. And as it turns out, no, you're not going to be a political scientist with a major in Mideastern studies. As it turns out, now you're, you're serving coffee in a Starbucks. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not what you signed on for. And you're living in your mom's basement again, and you're not happy, right? You're not happy because you, you started with this very specific goal. The people on Dirty Jobs, Matt, by and large, I'm generalizing, but by and large, none of them are doing the thing that they identified in their youth as their wish fulfillment. These are people who looked around hmm. and said, where's everybody going? I'll go the other way. Where's the opportunity? Septic tank cleaner in Wisconsin. Les Swanson was his name. Terrific guy. Les Swanson from Wisconsin. He, he, was, a, he was a guidance counselor for like 20 years, and, he, and, he, and, a, and a psychiatrist, a psychologist. He quit it all, started a septic tank business, not because he wanted to do that, but because that's what needed to be done. He figured out how to get good at it, and then he figured out how to love it. That's what's changed. We've told a whole generation of kids that your happiness depends on what you do, not who you are. And we've given them a roadmap that takes them right off a cliff. And we've encouraged them, for their trouble, to borrow more money than they'll ever be able to pay back. Money, by the way, that we can't even afford to lend them, to train them for jobs that don't exist anymore. Everything is backwards. Everything is disconnected. You touched on something just now that... that hit a nerve with me it's it's an identity issue that you aren't who you are you are what your title says you are and how do you identify what what is your identity based in well look that was the great lesson of my life because I had enough success up until I was 42 to create a level of hubris in my own work right as a guy who impersonated a host I got enough positive feedback in 20 years in, in TV to feel very confident that I was on the right track as a host. Were you, were you kind of a jerk back then? You know, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I was still insanely likable, as you know, right? Of course. <laughs> I was kind of a jerk. I was, I was the kind of jerk you run into who, who, was, who was quietly arrogant, you know? All my friends in, in my industry, had taken a traditional road. They had gone to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. They'd moved to LA, right? And they, they all, by the time I was 40, you know, they all had success, but they were all struggling. I was doing pretty good. Not great, but good. And I felt very confident and very kind of proud that I had figured out a business model that worked for me. Mm -hmm. But what I was doing didn't have any real inherent meaning for me. It was just a way to pay the bills and make sure I had four or five months off a year to go see the world and have a fun time. Dirty Jobs straightened me out. Dirty Jobs was the show that forced me to be <laughs> humble in a way that I, I would have never imagined being on camera and to assume a new role. Not, not the role of a host or an expert, uh, but the role of an apprentice and a, an avatar. Right. And so, yeah, for me, when I accepted that new role, I had a new business. And when that show blew up, 
then other like-minded shows made sense to pursue. And then a foundation emerged. And then I got a, I got a seat at the grown-up table. And I got a chance to sit here with people like you where we can actually talk about topics that I believe can unite the country. Well, we're divided in just about every possible way on every possible thing. But work shouldn't be one of those things. Wow. You know, and, and, I, and I'm afraid it has become a source of division, but, but it can't be. We can't, let, we can't let the country have such divergent views on the, defin the definition of a good job or the role of risk in life, you know. And look, if there's a silver lining, and there is, there's several silver linings in coronavirus, uh, but one of them is this clarifying process that's going to force us to think differently about these these big, epic, thematic ideas. And you can't talk about the definition of a good job without the definition of a worthwhile education. And when you see kids learning from home, when you see college students who are currently enrolled in Harvard, sitting home for another semester for which they are not going to be refunded, but going through the curriculum on nothing but a screen, <laughs> higher education is going to have to think differently about the value proposition. I love uh, listening to you, but do you feel like that was really an answer to what I asked you? Honestly, I drifted off. Yeah, what was okay. the question again? Um, you know, it feels like I said something about how you identify. Oh, right. Yeah, and then yeah. you just started talking about, you know, the society things, again. Right. Yeah. It's not a dirty job, but it is a job he is profoundly connected to. That's me. Some people have felt or some people feel like if they have a title with their name that that's who they are and that, you're, you know, your, your, your example of dirty jobs, the one that I remember that that is a, is a life lesson is the, the pig farmer that found all of the leftover food in the restaurants. I think it was in Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Oh, and cool. His pigs grew bigger and fatter and more, you know, um, valuable. Succulents. Absolutely, <laughs> because yeah. of you know. So so you guys went around and drove this truck and you hit the brakes too hard and the oh, yeah. slush came over and went down your collar and all that. Okay, that was that was a episode that is an analogy for a whole bunch of things. You could write a book about that guy and it would sell. Working on it. So, with that, what, where do you find your anchor and your identity so everything and all the trappings around you don't affect I you? I got it. Okay. Yeah, that's it. It's actually a better question than even you think because the guy you just described, his name is Bob Combs. And at a glance, you would look at him and you would say he's a pig farmer. And if you ask him what he does, he'd, he'd say, well, yeah, I, I raise pigs. But if you really sit down and ask him who he is, <laughs> He'd say, well, I'm a conservationist, not an environmentalist, a conservationist. Bob Combs, 
by collecting all of the uneaten buffet scraps in Vegas casinos <laughs> and distilling them in a giant <laughs> cooker that he built himself out of parts jerry-rigged and cobbled from nearby that junkyards. Look like this right here, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like Rube Goldberg, yeah. right? There's this giant cooking device in his backyard. He figured that out, and yeah, he was rewarded for it because his pigs grew like crazy. But he also saved the town an incredible bill in terms of landfill. Mm -hmm. He was doing a very environmentally friendly thing. And for that, he was punished. For that, as the development grew and the sprawl grew, the smell from that pig farm, you've been on a pig farm, well, I'll admit, it's bad. But look, there's a price for everything. Now, a big, vibrant pig farm whose pigs are fed with this distilled, uneaten casino food, it's just, it's only going to smell worse than a pig farm would normally smell. And so people around him wanted him to move. You know, he didn't want to move. Not long after that segment aired, a real estate consortium formed, and he was offered $70 million for his property. He passed. I called him. I said, Bob, what do you, what do you mean you passed? This is 12, 15 years ago, I guess. He said, Mike, what would I do with my pigs? You sound a little bit like Jimmy Stewart. Uh, but the funny thing was, I'm like, Bob, you, they're going to market anyway. But it never occurred to him in a million years to consummate a transaction that would change his relationship with work, as well as his identity. He's a conservationist who happens to be a pig farmer. Your question is, what am I? My answer is, I'm a perpetual apprentice. That's what I am. And you've settled on that. Yep. I am paid to try. My job, as we've discussed, is to tap the country on the shoulder from time to time and say, what about him? What about her? That's what somebody's got to do it is. That's what Dirty Jobs was. That's what returning the favor is. It's, they're all varied attempts to allow me permission to go out into the world and look under the rock and meet people who have in some way figured it out, maybe figured out the work thing, the vocation thing, the avocation thing. Passion. There's a great poem by, um, oh gosh, uh, Frost, Robert Frost, called Two Tramps in Mud Time. You should check it out. There's a line in it where he talks about his goal being to make his vocation and his avocation one and see the world with a single eye where love, uh, love and play are mortal stakes. All right, so that's the goal. I mean, there are a lot of bromides that deal with this, but if you can make your hobby your job, then you get paid to do something you love. And if you can figure out how to love your job, well, it's the same way. How you get there, this, this blending of work and play, of avocation and vocation, that's the challenge that the wide world of work has always posed. And um, whether we're up for it or not in this day and age is the question. Thank you for listening to this episode of TBN's Praise Podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, share it with a friend, and consider leaving a review. We look forward to having you join us back here next week.